Right. If you have your Bible, turn today to Romans chapter 6. We'll pick up where we left off. We're going through Romans verse by verse, and we've come today to Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 19. If you don't have a Bible, then get one of the black Bibles. It's on the end of the pew. It's on page 943 in that Bible. And if you don't have a Bible at all, if that's the reason you didn't bring one, it's because you just don't have one, then please pick that one up and take it home with you. It's our gift to you. Here is what God tells us. God, the Holy Spirit, has breathed out these words for us through the human agency of the Apostle Paul. Romans 6.15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness." I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Well, today is a day when there's a lot of, a lot of stuff going on, a lot, of, a lot being celebrated as well. Uh, so obviously it's Father's Day. We're really, really glad to have fathers here. By the way, if you're a father, can you just raise your hand right now? Praise God. Just thank God for you. And uh, I want to encourage you today in what God has given you in the stewardship of just leading your children, even those of you whose kids are grown and out of the house. You just have an influence as a father and telling the gospel, and it's so good. We're celebrating Father's Day today. Another thing that's on our calendar this year that's new to a lot of people, because it just became a, a national holiday last year, it's called Juneteenth, and so that's today, June 19th. That is a holiday that I never expected to become a holiday. I grew up with it because it's a Texas holiday. I thought it was just a Texas thing, because it's the date when the slaves were freed in Texas in the year 1865. They were the last state where that official proclamation of freedom came to the slaves. And so, uh, so it's, it's been something that I've been familiar with, the fact that people celebrate it for a long time. Not everybody's familiar with it, but it's a good thing. It's worth celebrating. And, uh, and so that legacy of uh, a slavery that, that our country had from its beginning is something that uh, we can be glad it's gone, <laughs> all right? And we can celebrate that. That's a good thing. I think that there are some Christians who kind of wonder, like, should we celebrate something like this? Because... The, like so, some of the ways that it got introduced almost felt like like it was being introduced as a slight to uh, to to other things and and like trying to promote a leftist agenda or something like that. And I just want to tell you, no, you can celebrate the fact that slavery ended in America. That's a great thing to celebrate, and so we should do that. We should absolutely do that. But what happened on that day, June nineteenth, eighteen sixty five, is that one of the generals of the Union Army came into the harbor of Galveston, Texas, which at the time was the largest city in Texas, and made this proclamation, said, here is what is happening now. The slaves in the state are free. Now, what would have happened if the slaves in that state had said, okay, that's great, and now you, general, we're taking you down. And, and we are, we're going we're gonna to say, okay, this is great that this civil war was won and that we have freedom, but now we are absolutely going to revolt 
against the Union Army that came and freed us. Would that make any sense? No, it wouldn't make any sense. It's not what happened because it wouldn't make any sense. But what is being brought up here in the Scripture is that kind of thing, is the idea if we've been set free from slavery to sin, which the Bible has already established in the verses leading up to this, that in Christ you've been set free, well, then does that mean that we are now free to rebel against God? No. It makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense uh, to, to say, okay, well, he has set me free, and therefore now I can spit in his face. That's not what it's about. And so as we come to this, this text, it's going to show us that as we've been set free from sin, that God's intention is now for us to be slaves to righteousness. So we're going to see three things here that have to do, that are laid out for us in the Scriptures with being slaves to righteousness. And the first one is that sin doesn't make sense for a Christian. Sin doesn't make sense for a Christian. So Romans 6, verse 15, is going to show us, first of all, that sin doesn't make sense because it's the wrong response to grace. So here's the question. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Or not under law, but under grace? And the answer is, by no means. By no means. Why not sin? Well, this is something that Paul keeps bringing up. This is, I think, the third time that we've had a statement kind of like this in the book of Romans. The first one was back in chapter 3, in verse 8, where it said, And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, Their condemnation is just. When he said it that first time, he didn't really deal with it. He just said, that's not a very smart thing to say. And then he brought it up again at the beginning of chapter 6. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He, said, he asked that because he had said, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That we get grace, just free-flowing grace to cover all our sin for us who trust in Christ. But then the question is, well, does that then free us to sin? And he says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in? And, and then now a third time, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? The answer is, by no means. Guys, this is just a reminder, first of all, and I've tried to say this the two times that it's come up already, and I'm going to say it again. We need to have a gospel where the grace that we are proclaiming is free such that it can be easily misunderstood as saying that it's a license to sin. We are not saying that it's a license to sin. But if you're so concerned with telling people that they ought not to sin, that they think that that is the heart of your message, then you're not preaching the gospel. The gospel is where you're coming to people and you're saying, God receives sinners. And God forgives sinners, and God gives grace to sinners, not waiting around to see whether you will improve first and then rewarding that improvement with grace. That's not grace. Grace is where he takes sinners in their sin and by faith alone in Christ alone justifies them, counts them as righteous, saves us. That's the gospel. That's the gospel that you and I need. 
You, you need to come to Jesus in faith, trusting in him alone and not in any bit of your righteousness, not in any bit of your improvement in holiness, but only in Christ and his righteousness. And when we preach that true gospel, it is easily misunderstood and easily maligned as though we're coming around and saying, well, this is just giving a free license to sin to anybody who will claim the name of Jesus. Hand them a free get-out-of-hell card, and then they're going to live like they're going to hell and just hold up the card every time they do it. Well, no, that's not what the true gospel is. And this verse is saying that does not fit. If you receive grace, that's not what happens. If you have come to faith in Christ... And I'm talking about actual faith in Christ, not just that you have said with your lips that you believe in Christ, but actually a new heart to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus for your salvation. Well, then you're not going to say, okay, I'm now free to run around in this grace and punch the grace-giving God in the face all that I want. That's not the right response to grace. I just want to remind you that last time he said in verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you since you were not under law but under grace. He's already said it. He said because you're not under the law, because you have grace, that's why sin will not dominate you. That's why sin will not be your Lord. But he's also clearing it up. He's saying, I know what some people are going to say. I just told you that you've been rescued from the covenant of works, the old covenant that said, here's your relationship with God, do these things and you will live. You have to be rescued from that because you're a sinner, and you can't do these things, and you can't live. When you come to Christ, he's rescued you with that, and he's put you into what we call the covenant of grace, which just means a new way of God dealing with you, where he doesn't deal with you according to your sin any longer. He doesn't deal with you according to the scales of good and bad, where you would be bad and you would die. He deals with you according to Christ, that you've been united to Jesus, the only person who has ever lived, who fulfilled the covenant of works, who did everything perfectly in thought, word, and deed, and he did it for you, believer. And he died for your sins. And he rose from the dead to give you life, and it's all given to you freely. That's God's grace. It's a new relationship with God where before you were in this status of having your sin counted against you. And now you're in a status of having Jesus' righteousness counted to you. That, that's what we're out of. And the question is, now that we're not under the law but we're under grace, do we sin because of that? And the answer is, if you know this grace, you know that's obviously not true. You, you know that that's not the case. It is not the right response. When, when Jesus came, it said in John 1 that, that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who came and established that grace. That grace, as people had been trusting in Christ all the way from the beginning, as, the, as everybody who's ever been saved has been saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus brought it in time and space and history. He brought grace. And he gives not just grace, 
But it says in John 1, 1, or not, not John 1, the chapter, John 1, says there, he gives grace upon grace. Now, one of the things that that means is, yes, every time you sin, Christian, you can go without fear before God and know that he will still give you grace. You're, you can't out-sin God's grace. That's part of what grace upon grace means. But here's another thing that it means. It means that he doesn't only give you grace to forgive your sins, redeeming grace, forgiving grace. He also gives you grace to transform your heart and to transform your life. So, so, so there is forgiving grace and there is transforming grace. And Jesus gives both. One way to put it is that Jesus will take you as you are but he's not going to leave you as you are. No matter where you are in your life, in your sin, in your rebellion against God, there is nothing that you have to clean up before you come to God and lay it at the feet of Jesus and receive forgiveness and grace. You can just come right now and lay down your burden. You can do that. And as you do that, he's not going to just say, okay, now keep your burden." Stay as you are. No, he's going to take you and he's going to bring you in and he's going to clean you up. Remember that story of the prodigal son that Jesus told? When, when that son came crawling back to his father and he was going to ask for a place among the slaves in his father's house, what did his father do? He didn't just receive him back in. He put the robe on him. He put the gold ring on his finger. He cleaned him up. He threw him a feast. He took him as he was, but he didn't leave him as he was. And that's what God does. He gives us not just forgiving grace, but transforming grace. And so if we think that the right response to God's grace is sin, then you don't understand the fullness of the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. A lot of times as Christians, especially in Reformed places like ours, we talk about things called the means of grace. The means of grace are sometimes called spiritual disciplines. It's the ways that God has given us to receive more of his grace. Things like being in the Bible on a regular basis, being in prayer on a regular basis, being in the accountable fellowship of the church on a regular basis. These are things that God uses to graciously transform us, to grow in grace. We use that term too. We want to grow in grace. And as we look at each other's lives as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we want to recognize what we call evidence of grace. So, so as we see the, the fruit of the Spirit coming out in each other's hearts and, and is expressed through their, their words and their actions, as we see those things, we can say that's evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in you by His grace. And we can thank God for those things. Evidence of grace. None of those things, as we say growing in grace, we're not talking about diving deeper into sin so you can get more grace. That's not what we mean by growing in grace. We mean being transformed by the transforming grace of the Holy Spirit. So that's if you understand grace, and if you understand what we've been given, if you know God, you are not going to have a desire to sin so that grace may increase right? You're going to have a desire to grow in holiness, to honor this God. 
And that's what we're going to see as we, we go on. He gives another reason why it doesn't make sense for, for, why sin doesn't make sense for a Christian. And the second is that sin is an enslavement that leads to death. Verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Now, he, when he says, do you not know, that phrase means this is something that you should obviously know. I think that we should obviously know this as Christians. But I also think he's, he's referring here probably to, to just the, the culture of that day uh, where there was what was called indentured servitude. And if somebody was falling into poverty and they didn't know how they were going to survive, then one of the options that a person had in those days in the ancient Roman world and even in the, before the Roman world, back it's, it's all the way back in Exodus and in the Jewish world and other places, but the, 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 those who were falling into poverty had the option to go and to say to someone who had means, who had money, to say, I will serve you for X many years if you will care for me and my family, provide us with food, provide us with something. It's, it's, it's signing up for this term of what in some ways could be called slavery, but it's not slavery in the terms that, that we would think of American slavery, which was chattel slavery. But he's saying, you know this, Romans, you know that if you go to present yourself as an obedient slave to someone, then you are the slave of the one whom you obey. That would have made sense to them. One of the more modern uh, examples of things that would correspond to that would be something like signing up for the military today, which is certainly a respectable thing to do, and it's something that people do in some some cases where they're falling into poverty and they need a better option. And so they'll go and they'll sign up to be a soldier, and, and they have a certain number of years of commitment where even though they voluntarily signed up to do that, if they leave within that time, they're going to prison. Right, and yet that also is providing them with an opportunity and and potential uh, future from that. So that's that's more corresponding to the kind of slavery that it's talking about here. And yet, what it's saying here is, don't go and present yourself as an obedient slave to sin. So he says here, this is not fitting. It's not fitting for a Christian to dive into sin. Because if you're doing that, then you are going back into the same kind of bondage that Jesus rescued you out of to start with. You may not think of it this way. You may think, well, no, that's just freedom to live as I feel like. That is slavery to what you feel like. And that's not good. Slavery to the the old sinful self, slavery to the sin nature. Now, Jesus dealt with this, and, and there were some who were, who were kind of interested in following Jesus, but Jesus kind of shows them they didn't quite get it yet at this point. In John chapter 8, he says to these who are following him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, the way that you usually hear that quoted, you would think that everybody hearing that would just stand up and cheer at that point. But they didn't. Instead, here's what they said. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Hear that? They objected to the very idea that they needed to be set free from anything. 
And here's Jesus' answer. Jesus answered them, this is John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. See, it's a kind of slavery that deceives people into thinking that they're free. It's a kind of slavery where everybody thinks, well, no, I'm just doing what I want to. Well, guys, if you present yourself to sin, you are going back into the bonds that you have been rescued out of in Christ. Don't do that. Just don't do that, okay? (laughs) I shouldn't say just don't do that. The Holy Spirit has to empower you not to do that. But don't do that. If you present yourself to sin, I, I have to say here, this is not about whether or not you still experience temptation to sin as a Christian. I know you still experience temptation to sin. All of us still experience temptation to sin. If you think to yourself, well, I, I, if, if I were really free in Christ, then I wouldn't feel any temptation to sin anymore. You, you don't understand. <laughs> we still have these bodies. That's what he talked about last time. That We still have this mortal body. We, we're, we're still... Here, we're not free from the presence of sin yet. But he is saying, Christian, Christian, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you don't have to walk in bondage to it anymore. Even though you still feel desires stirring up that you wish you didn't feel. Even though you still have temptations that you wish were not presented to you in front of your eyes. You are not bound to those things. And so don't present yourself to those things. Don't serve them as your master. He says, if you're presenting yourself to those things, remember what the end of sin is, either of sin which leads to death. Guys, this is, this is going back to chapter 5. It's going back to chapter 1. It's all over the place in here. Sin is deadly. Sin is what we were born in bondage to, whether we felt like it or not. We were born in Adam, we were born in our sin nature, we were born dead men. And we've been rescued out of that if you've come to faith in Christ. So don't go back into that. If you think to yourself, well, I can just, I can just trust in Jesus but continue about my way of life, you need to hear these scriptures. Revelation 21.8. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You need to hear this, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If these things characterize your life, you are in spiritual danger. You may be deceiving yourself into thinking that you're a Christian when you're not. These are deadly. But I have good news. It says here, Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. As that's what God can do in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you say to yourself, I don't know, I am 
unsure of my salvation right now because of my sin, leave it behind. Leave it behind by the power of the Holy Spirit and walk in holiness. It is normal for voluntary sin in your life to shake your assurance of salvation. It's normal, and I think it's a warning from the Holy Spirit to run away from it. Run toward righteousness. Don't be enslaved to sin. Don't be enslaved to sin. Now, there are, unfortunately, there are teachers out there. There are Bible teachers out there who will tell you that you can have Jesus as your Savior without having Jesus as your Lord. That's not the case. Jesus is the whole Jesus. You can't split up Jesus like that. Now, the way that it's put in our statement of faith at this church is that we, when we come to Christ, that we accept Jesus as our prophet, priest, and king. You can't take Jesus as your prophet to guide you by his teachings and, and your priest to forgive your sins, but then leave behind the part where he's your king to rule over you. He's all three of those things. You take Jesus or you don't take Jesus. You receive Jesus or you don't receive Jesus. There's not like a lower level of Christian who has received Jesus as Savior, but then hasn't made it to the higher level of receiving him as Lord. That's somebody who's not a Christian. That's somebody who has made a false profession of faith. When you receive Jesus, you receive the whole Christ as your prophet, as your priest, and as your sovereign king over your heart and your life. He is all of those things. So don't go and present yourself as slaves of sin. Jesus died not to make us free to sin, but to make us free from sin, to make us free from the power of sin. Instead, he says, what we're supposed to do is present yourself, in verse 16, to obedience, which leads to righteousness. That leading to death, I think, had to do with that final second death, and that leading to righteousness, I think, has to do with that final glorified state, the way that it's using it here. It says in Galatians 5, 5, through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. You know, one day, even though you're already counted as righteous in Christ, believer, I know I've, I've said this the last couple of weeks, but it just makes me so excited. You're going to stand in front of Jesus completely without the presence of sin at all in you. No sin, no desire to sin even when you're in the presence of Christ. And it won't just be imputed righteousness, but when you're in the presence of Christ, it's going to be lived righteousness in glory completely. I'm really looking forward to that. I'm really, really looking forward to that, and I hope you are too. But it says here, if you're looking forward to that, then go on right now. Stop presenting yourself as a slave to sin and start presenting yourself as a slave to obedience leading to righteousness. You can do that, Holy Spirit indwelt believer. You can do that. Just one more thing to know. 1 John 3, 9 and 10. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. That doesn't mean that no one born of God ever sins. That same book of the Bible, he says, if you say you have no sin, then you're making God a liar. And that's not the case. But you can't be at peace with your sin. You can't make a practice of sinning. 
No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Hmm. Love that. Makes me want to preach another sermon. But let's go to point two instead on the back of your bullets. And we can thank God when we leave slavery to sin behind. So look at verses 17 and 18. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. That's telling you right there, there's something to thank God for here. I love passages of the Bible that tell us what to thank God for. If you want to have a contented heart, not contented because of outside things that would warm you like a like a campfire that you walk up to and you hope it doesn't go out, but contentment from within, that the Holy Spirit would give you within. I got that from Jeremiah Burroughs. But if you want to have a contented heart, then you need to be about the regular practice of thanking God, of giving thanks, not even just of feeling a a sense of gratitude, but of actual giving thanks. And here's are some things that you can thank God for, believer in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Here's an objective truth about a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether you feel like it or not, if you are a believer, then God has made you obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. When it says, to which you were committed, that's a passive verb. Grammar in the Bible. Grammar in the Bible tells us beautiful things from the mind of God that you need to know. The fact that this is a passive verb means you don't actively do that. Somebody else causes this to be the case in your life. And you know who causes this to be the case? Who is it that committed you from the heart to be obedient to the standard of teaching? Who is it that did that? Well, he said in the beginning of verse 17, thanks be to God. You hear that? How did you come to faith? How did you come to embrace the Christian faith? That's what it means here by the standard of teaching to which you are committed. The whole shebang of the Christian faith. How did you, from the heart, come to embrace Christ and be a Christian? God did it. This was not an active thing that you did. This was passive on your part, in this grammar at least, and it was active on God's part. You say, but I chose to believe. Yes, you did. Absolutely. Because God changed your heart. Because you never would have apart from him doing that. You never would have. And so the fact that you believe the gospel that you have what is called at the beginning of Romans and at the end of Romans, the obedience of faith, that you have obediently come to obey the gospel, the good news, to embrace Jesus as your Savior, that's something that you can thank God for. And he's driving home here. Here's what God has done in bringing you to this. He has brought you to an obedience to this Christian faith, to the standard of teaching, An obedience from the heart. An obedience from the heart. Sometimes when people hear this stuff about sin and righteousness, they think, okay, I need to start acting more righteous. 
I hate it. Don't want to do it. Wish God didn't say to do these things. Bugs me to death. But I'm going to just change my behavior. You know what that is? That's a hypocrite. The world defines hypocrisy like this. The world says that a hypocrite is somebody who says one thing and does another. And I guess that's a form of hypocrisy. But the hypocrisy that the Bible talks about, you can say the thing and do the thing all the time, and yet inside your heart, it's in a different place altogether. This is the way that Jesus talked about the Pharisees. He called them whitewashed tombs. You look around the outside of that thing, it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be painted white all around. But he said, on the inside are dead men's bones. A Christian is not somebody who just changes their behavior on the outside. It's somebody who has a heart change that can only come from God. That's why Jesus said, the true worshipers will worship me in spirit and in truth. And not just with the outside actions. Spirit and in truth. And he says, thanks be to God. Guys, if you have not had this heart change, pray that God would give it to you. Ask God to give you a new heart. Maybe you've been pretending for decades to be a Christian. Ask him to give you a new heart instead. Maybe you don't care anything about Christianity at all, and you would just much rather pursue your own pleasures and desires you can ask for God to give you a new heart too. And God, I think he, he honors and loves those prayers. There's no one who comes to Christ that he turns away. Oh, I love it. So when we have that new heart to be obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, we can thank God. We can thank God for what it says in verses, verse 18 as well. Two more passive verbs, having been set free from sin. This is something that God has done. It's an act of God to take us and to free us from sin. And believer, you are free from sin. You say to yourself, but, but I have this thing, that I have this indwelling sin that I'm dealing with. I have this habit that I hate and that I haven't shaken yet, and, and I'm not out of this sin yet. Well, it doesn't have power over you. It might be habitual. It might be frustrating. It might shake your assurance, but if you're a believer in Christ, you've been set free, and you have the opportunity by the power of the Holy Spirit to walk away from it right now. Repent. Repent. Don't just say, oh, I'm, I, I want to struggle harder. No, repent. Repent, and you can do that because you have been set free. It says in John eight thirty six, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus sets believers free, and we can thank and praise God for that. And we can thank and praise God that he has enslaved us to righteousness. This is the end of verse 18, having become slaves of righteousness. And I wish it translated a little more literally there. Some other translations might be better on this. But where it says, having been set free from sin, it should also say, having been enslaved to righteousness. That's what it says. We have been enslaved by someone else to righteousness. This goes back a little bit to that word committed at the end of verse 17. That word has to do, it's, it's almost like a picture of, of a master taking his servant and handing him over to a different master. And that's what God has done when he saves us. He takes us 
out of slavery to sin and hands us over in this picture, hands us over to slavery to righteousness. Now, if you say to yourself, I don't like that idea. I don't like the idea of being a slave at all. I don't want to be a slave to anything. Why do you say I have to be a slave to righteousness or a slave to obedience? Well, he answers that in verse 19 a little bit. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. That's the answer right there. <laughs> All right? It's not, it's not, you're not going to find a 100% analogy to everything about slavery having to do with righteousness. It's not like you're, you know, you're going to be just you know, lashing out against righteousness. You hate it. No, this is true freedom. He uses a different analogy. The Holy Spirit, through the same uh, human author in the book of Galatians, uses a different analogy where he says that in Christ, we're no longer slaves under the law. We've now received adoption as sons. So that adoption as sons is the same thing as slavery to righteousness. But I think, I was thinking about this a little bit, why does he use two drastically different analogies in those different places? Here's what I think is the difference. In Galatians, what's going on in the, the book of Galatians and the churches in Galatia is that they are tempted toward what we call legalism. Legalism is that way of going about religion that says that I can, by my works and by my religiosity, I can earn a better place with God. That's what he's battling against in Galatians. And there he says, you are free from the law and you need to now view yourselves as sons and not slaves any longer. But I think what he's dealing with here in this section of Romans 6 is not so much legalism, but licentiousness. The temptation or the accusation that, that some Christians might say, well, because I'm now forgiven and I have grace, now I can sin all the more. And he says, no, you can't. In your freedom, consider yourself a slave to righteousness instead. If you're tempted toward legalism, then you probably need to latch more onto that analogy that you are now no longer a slave, but you're now a son. But if you're tempted to go into licentiousness and feed the desires of your flesh, you need to latch onto this analogy. Be a slave to righteousness instead. Be a slave to obedience and to righteousness. And when we see that, when we see that working out in our lives, because he says, this is already true of you, every Christian. This is already true of you from the moment you believe. Thank God for that. Thank God he's made us obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which he has committed us. Thank God that he has set us free from slavery to sin. Thank God that he has enslaved us to righteousness because that's freedom. That's freedom. You, you may say to yourself, well, that doesn't... It sound like freedom? Well, I'll use the, the, the same analogy that I've heard John Piper use a bunch of times, and I've probably used it a bunch of times here too, but if you jump out of an airplane without a parachute, you're going to feel free for a couple of minutes. But true freedom is not destructive. If, if you are bound by gravity to hit the ground, you're not really free. If you are bound by sin to death, you are not free. 
It might fool you into thinking that you have a kind of freedom for a little while. That's not freedom. Freedom is found in faith in Jesus Christ and in following him in righteousness. So consider yourself a slave to righteousness and thank God that you are. And we can see also in these verses, especially verse 19, that we can actively participate in our sanctification. If you don't know what sanctification means, it means holification. It means growing in holiness. There is nothing that you can do to make yourself justified, but you can actively participate in your sanctification. Let me just clarify what I'm saying. There's nothing that you can do to make your sins forgiven. That's 100% a work of Jesus on the cross. But as those who are forgiven, he has given us a lot of stuff to do to participate in our growth in Christ-likeness, our growth in holiness. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. We never take credit for it. And yet he gives us things to do. Here's what it says in, in verse 19. After he talks about that analogy that he's using, he says, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Leading to growth and holiness is what that means. That present your members language, it goes back to verse 13. We talked about it a little bit last week. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. When it says instruments, when it says members, it's saying take your body parts, take the natural abilities that God has given you, take your time, take your money, take your sleep schedule, take your responsibilities, and turn them over to God for his use, for his glorification. That's what it's saying. What were those things turned over to before we came to Christ? Well, they were turned over to impurity and to lawlessness. You may say to yourself, well, I know a lot of people who don't trust in Jesus, and they don't seem like they're given over to impurity and lawlessness all the time. Well, yes, they are. Apart from faith in Christ, the only thing that can be driving you is idols. I wonder what kind of idols drove you before. Maybe it was self, lust, money, power, prestige. But all these things, it says this is impurity, this is lawlessness, and it's a vicious cycle. It's lawlessness that leads to more lawlessness, which leads to more lawlessness. It's like, it's like when somebody gets addicted to drugs or alcohol. The more that they feel, or the more that they get, the more they feel like they need. And it's an awfully hard thing to escape. And the Bible says this is the pattern of lostness apart from Christ. It's a presenting yourself to impurity and to lawlessness that just goes deeper and deeper down the spiral. And you may think to yourself, well... What can we do about that? You may say to yourself the same thing that Paul said in, in Romans 7.25, which we'll come to in a few weeks, where he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
But there's an answer, and the answer is, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He delivers from that vicious cycle that you could never get yourself out of, of impurity and lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. Receive the grace of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Go to him and receive it. And as those who've received that forgiveness, go to Jesus and receive the grace of transformation too. He will give it to you. He will rescue you out of those downward spirals and those cycles, and you can instead obediently pursue righteousness to grow in holiness. The last part of verse 19, present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Maybe before you served lust and money and power and all those things. Maybe you served religiosity like Paul did before his conversion, where he says that even then when he was pretending to be so righteous that he was the foremost of all sinners. It's the way he described it. What were you serving before? Well, it says now, serve Christ. Now, instead of serving those things, present your members as slaves to righteousness. How hard do people run after the world and after the flesh and after the desires of the flesh and the things that just seem normal and and satisfying to the lost world? Run that hard after righteousness. That's what it's saying. When it says leading to sanctification, I want to read you from our statement of faith, the 1853 uh, New Hampshire Confession, what it says about sanctification. We believe that sanctification is the process by which, according to the will of God, we are made partakers in his holiness, that it is a progressive work, that it is begun in regeneration, and that it is carried out in the hearts of believers by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, the sealer and comforter in the continual use of the appointed means. This is what I really want to point you to here today. We have said this together in our confession of faith, that we have means to pursue holiness in our lives. And it says especially the Word of God, self-examination, self-denial, and watchfulness, and prayer. Guys, God has given you these things that you can do in your life to pursue righteousness, to live as a slave to righteousness, to pursue holiness. Guys, what what are the things that the world holds up as its examples to follow? The people who've given their lives over to certain things. You you, you look and you see, well, the, the, the people that everybody wants to be like, the people that's, you know, they get their biographies written, how can I be like this person? Well, it's people with lots of money. It's people with lots of power. People want to be like the men who attract the most beautiful women and the women who attract the most wealthy men. It's people who succeed at at fulfilling the desires of the flesh. And what if we worked just as hard at pursuing holiness as the world works at pursuing those pleasures? Can you imagine what kind of church this would be? That's what the Bible says to do right here. Now, is there something holding you back from that? The only thing that is real that would hold you back from that is unbelief. If you're a believer in Christ, there is nothing to hold you back from pursuing righteousness and holiness with all of who you are as you pursue God 
as you would go deep into love for God, deep into love for your neighbor. There's nothing to hold you back. Sometimes I hear it said, and, and I've, I've probably said this too at some point, it's usually something that preachers say to each other. I don't know if you've ever heard it before, but, but it's said that people in a church can't possibly grow spiritually beyond where the elders of their church have grown. That's not true, guys. I get the sentiment. The sentiment is, pastors, you need to pursue holiness as an example to the flock. And yes, that's absolutely true. But there is nothing preventing you from getting way, way holier than your pastor. There's nothing. Did you know that you, believer, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God? So if somebody says, well, your limit is the guy up at the front... No. I, I say to that, fooey. So please, please, out-holy your pastor. Out-holy your pastor, not as a competition, but in service to Christ. Love God. Don't let anything hold you back. Just as you once presented your members to lawlessness, now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. You may think to yourself, wow, he's challenging us to go way above and beyond what we have to do as Christians. No, I'm not. This is the normal Christian life. You are now in service to God. He didn't say, I have signed you up as a volunteer, and I hope you go above and beyond. He says, no, you were once slaves to sin, and now you are slaves to righteousness. You are not a volunteer. You are not going above and beyond when you pursue righteousness and holiness with a vigor in your life. Here's what Jesus says in Luke 17. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in in from the field, come at once and sit down at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Do it. Do it. Guys, if you need to receive the forgiveness of Jesus, come to Jesus and receive it. He gives it freely. And also come and receive the transforming grace of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you give us grace to forgive us. We thank you that you give us grace to transform us, and I pray that you would do that more and more. I pray for the people of First Baptist Church of Manawan, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, absolutely nothing to hold them back from pursuing you with the fullness of their vigor in all the things that you've given them to do and in all the means of grace that you've set in front of us. I pray that you would grow this church in holiness far, far beyond where the pastor of this church is, or any future pastors of this church that we would bring on as elders. God, I pray that you would give us eyes set on Jesus and his beauty and his holiness and his glory and help us to run hard in pursuit after that righteousness and sanctification as well. God, I pray that those who are apart from Christ would be forgiven, that you'd bring them in and give them grace and forgive them, justify them, And as as those who are in Christ, purify us, lead us out of sin, lead us into righteousness. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.